this time that we have together in God's Word. And thank you for this church family and the love that's here and what you're doing amongst us and growing us. And um, Lord, we know that the church is important, um, that you are the foundation of the church, you're the cornerstone. Lord, in the book of Revelation, you stand in the midst of the church. And Lord, we know that you're here in this place with this body of believers. And just as we're going to see in the building of the temple, you're still building a temple today. It's a living temple, living stones being put together. And, and Solomon, his desire, as well as his father David, was to magnify you in the building of the temple. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to magnify name. We don't want to magnify ourselves, but we want to magnify the name of the Lord. So, Lord, I pray that tonight that you would just um, help us as we are going through this portion of Scripture. May we be excited. May we get it instructed. May there be understanding and clarity and application to be made. And so, Lord, open up our ears spiritually. Lord, soften our hearts to receive your word. May we be attentive. And, Lord, we look forward to what you have for us tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in Second Chronicles chapter 2, what we're going to see is Solomon's going to begin to build the temple. And, and as you go through the Old Testament, I think it's important for us to understand um, there are different uh, temples that are mentioned in the Scriptures. And sometimes when I um, even have heard Bible study or um, I read blogs that there's a little bit of confusion about, you know, which temple is being spoken of. So I just want to make it real, real clear to you as we go through this. But as you go through the Old Testament, of course, you have the, the books of Moses, the books of the law, and the first five books. And in that, Genesis, of course, chapter 12, that God would call Abraham and tell him to leave his father's house and go to the place that I'm going to show you. And gave that promise to Abraham, made a covenant with him that I'm going to give you a descendant, and from your descendants, Abraham, is going to number the stars, a great multitude, and going to be a great nation. So we see that that promise, that covenant, would pass from Abraham to his son Isaac, as you go through the book of Genesis, and then through Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, which were the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel. And we see that um, at the end of the book of Genesis, it was one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, uh, that became prime minister of Egypt, and it was uh, Jacob's family, 75 in totality, the scripture tells us, that would move to Egypt because there was famine in the land. And there they would be for about 400 years, and the pharaoh under Joseph was uh, favorable to Jacob and his family, was good to them, but as the years passed and as the Hebrews began to multiply, the pharaohs that came on the scene looked out and they saw that and they said, we got to do something about this. So they made them slaves and they cried out to the Lord. And you know, as you go into the book of Exodus, that there Moses was called by the Lord to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. They would come to the mountain of God. And as they're camped at the mountain of God, God showed himself to them and made a covenant with them, didn't he? And he said, essentially, in that covenant, that if you follow after me and you obey my commandments and, and worship me wholeheartedly, I'm going to bless you when you go into the promised land. 
I'm going to defeat the enemy. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to send the rains. You're going to have abundance of crops. And also at that time, in making that covenant, not only am I going to bless you and establish you in the land, but also part of that covenant, of course, was if you forsake me, then there's going to be consequences of I'm going to dry up the the land. You're going to have locust infestations. There's going to be difficulties. You're going to find yourself being defeated by the enemy, and you're going to find yourself going into captivity. So it's really a a simple covenant. Obey me, be blessed, uh, forsake me, and there's going to be difficulties, and there's going to be loss, and there's going to be uh, consequences that are going to be very bad for you as a nation. But also at that time, not only establishing that covenant, but while they're there at Mount Sinai, that the Lord would begin to get them ready as a nation. He gave them the ceremonial and religious laws. You go through the book of Leviticus, you see that he established the priesthood, the, the Levites, the responsibilities given to them. But not only was he preparing them religiously and ceremonially, but also civilly, as we know that the governing principles were given to them, uh, the judges were established, things like that. So everything was ready to go that when they went into the promised land, that God would be the one that would rule over them. Um, He is the one that was blessing them. It was to be a witness to the other nations that when they saw that their true and living God was blessing them, protecting them, um, then they would see that he is the true and the living God. It was to be a witness to the other nations. And we know that as the children of Israel spent the 40 years in the wilderness because of disobedience and unbelief, and then that new generation, as you go into the book of Joshua, from the book of Joshua all the way to Esther, is what is that section called in the Old Testament, the historical books. And the reason that it's called the historical books is because it tells of the history of the time when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River under the reign of Joshua until the time of when uh, the house of Israel would go into captivity, the house of Judah later would go into captivity, and then they would come back from that captivity from Babylon, and then they would uh, also uh, be in the land there as they would rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So those are the historical books. And we know that as Joshua had great victory in the book of Joshua, then we also know the book of Judges comes. And the book of Judges talks about, as Paul said, the the time of the judges in the book of Acts lasted 450 years. And there was this vicious cycle of the children of Israel. They would forsake the Lord find themselves in bondage to the enemy. They would cry out to the Lord. The Lord would deliver up a judge, a deliverer, right? Some of those, Deborah was one. Um, um, It was Samson was another judge. Um, You know, Gideon was another one. So you read the story of the book of Judges um, in that book. And then finally, after the days of the judges, the people would call for a king. They said, we want a king to rule over us. We want to be like the other nations. And that's as you go into 1 Samuel. And Samuel, who was the last of the judges, who was a godly man, he grieved over that. And the Lord said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. That's why I called them Israel, governed by God. I wanted to be their king, truly. But they've been a stiff-necked people ever since they've come out of Egypt. So they had a king. Saul was the first king. Then David. And it's interesting that we saw David in First Chronicles, his reign, how he was a man after God's own heart, that he was one that desired to please God in building of the temple. 
God blessed him. He was a great warrior. He defeated the enemies all around him. And it's interesting that Israel has a, uh, the, the, the most time that they were blessed and, and uh, that God was really working powerfully, that um, we see that the nation is being prosperous, was a fairly short time during the reign of David, 40 years David reigned, and then the reign of Solomon for 40 years. And of course, as Solomon is on the throne, it, that's when Israel experiences its greatest prosperity, its greatest power, its greatest prestige. And it's shortly after Solomon that we're going to see for the rest of Second Chronicles that the kings come on um, the scene, the kings of Judah that we'll be looking at. Some were good kings and some were bad kings. Uh, we are not going to look at the kings of Israel that we saw in First and Second Kings that we read about. And you know that after the reign of Solomon, that his son Rehoboam's on the throne, the people come to Rehoboam and said, listen, your father, you know, really put a heavy burden on us with the taxes and everything. Can you ease up a bit on that? And Rehoboam said, no, I'm not going to do that. So the ten northern tribes split off, and they were known as the House of Israel. And then the two tribes down south, Benjamin and Judah, made up the House of Judah. All the kings of the house of Israel were wicked kings, all 19 of them. We saw that very clearly traveling and through First and Second Kings, and um, they eventually would go off into captivity by the Assyrians in about 722 B.C. It would be the house of Judah that did a little bit better, but not a whole lot better. And they, too, would go off into captivity, and we'll read about that at the end of Second Chronicles, beginning in 605 B.C. We know that in this time that Solomon is reigning, it's about 970 B.C., and he's going to build the temple, okay? And that's the first temple. When you go through the scriptures, as we're going to see in chapter 2, Solomon's preparing to build the temple. That's what we've been talking about. David, he made preparations to build the temple. God said, David, you're not going to build a temple. But what David did is he got the materials ready. He got the Levites all organized, the gatekeepers, the musicians, uh, their responsibilities, the different families of the Levites. Remember that? The Kohathites, the Gershonites, the Maronites. Here are your responsibilities. Uh, the priests were organized. The military was organized. Everything was ready to go because there, it's no longer the tabernacle out there in the wilderness and, of course, that was the first sanctuary that was built, wasn't it? That God came to Moses and said, Moses, build the tabernacle after the pattern that I show you. So it was a very simple temporary structure that they've had ever since they came to Mount Sinai. It would go into the promised land. It, it was there um, in the promised land, and moving around. It was at Shiloh for a couple hundred years. At this time, it's in Gibeah. So that's the tabernacle. Now a permanent structure is going to be built. Solomon is going to build the first temple, again, about 970 B.C. That temple is going to stand until 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar, as we will see at the end of Second Chronicles, is going to come in and he's going to destroy Solomon's temple and he's going to destroy Jerusalem. At that time, Daniel is off into captivity. He's ministering there in the palace of Babylon. We know Ezekiel's taken off into captivity. Jeremiah, he is in Judah. He is ministering there. So Judah would go off into captivity, and 70 years later, in 536 B.C., Cyrus, the, the uh, king of the Medes and the Persians, he would give the decree that they could come back. So they would come back, a small remnant of them, 
and Zerubbabel would lead them, as well as Joshua, the spiritual leader. They would come back to Jerusalem, about 50,000 of them, and they would rebuild the temple. That's the second temple. And I want to make sure that we're clear on this because you read about the temple in, in this section of the historical books. You read about a second temple when you get to Nehemiah, Ezra, and when you get to, um, to um, those books that deal with after the captivity. So Zerubbabel builds a very simple temple. God honored it. And that temple would be built um, in about you know, 500 B.C. again. And we know that temple would stand for 500 years. And then right before the birth of Jesus, what we see is that Herod the Great, he was called the Great because he was a great builder, wasn't he? He expands the second temple. He makes it a magnificent building. And it became one of the wonders of the world as far as um, magnificence and overlaid with gold. And that's the temple that stood that you read about as you read the Gospels and as we're reading the book of Acts. That's the second temple, all right? That temple gets destroyed in 70 A.D. Titus and the Roman legions would surround Jerusalem. They would siege Jerusalem, and then they would go in and, and break through the walls finally. And, and uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about it, uh, how uh, terrible the siege was. But they went in, and they did exactly as Jesus said would happen, that not one stone was left upon another. The temple was ripped apart because the temple burnt. It burnt and melted the gold, and it, it would melt down. And so in a frenzy to get to the gold, uh, the Romans just tore the temple apart. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can actually see the excavations that they've done recently to where they took those stones and threw them over the Temple Mount. And you can see those stones today. It's very fascinating to see that. So that was the end of the Second Temple, 70 A.D. At that time, the Jews were scattered throughout all of the world. They didn't have a homeland, didn't come back into as, uh, the land as a nation um, until 1948 a fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets would speak about, that they would be scattered uh, throughout the world. They would come back and become a nation once again. That was fulfilled. Absolutely amazing that 2,000 years passed. The Jews without a homeland, and they come back into their original homeland. A fulfillment of what God said would happen. And they became a nation in 1948. What happened in 1967, as immediately when they became a nation, those nations around Israel, bordering them, those Arab nations, attacked them. And God said that once they came back into the land, that he was going to preserve them. God still has a plan for them. We read about that in Daniel chapter 9, because when you get to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, is, is you remember from our study, he's talking about another temple. He's talking about another temple that's going to be built but yet daniel is given those prophecies you know after the destruction of the first temple it, it, it's not talking about the second temple um, but he's talking about another temple so there's a third temple that is spoken of the, in the scripture daniel talking about the 70th week of daniel final seven year period where god is going to be dealing with the nation of israel again we call that seven year period the tribulation period so there's going to be a third temple that is yet future. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. Now something very fascinating happened that most of you know. Israel becomes a nation that would begin the end time clock. Jesus said that when you see the fig tree bud, know that summer is near. Know that my coming is very nigh. 
And as they've come into the land, God has protected them against overwhelming odds. In 1967, again, those nations attacked with the full force of their militaries. And Israel ended up defeating those armies in six days. The Six-Day War is what it's called. It happened in June of 1967. What happened at that time is they took over East Jerusalem. You say, what's the significance of that? East Jerusalem is where the Temple Mount is. And I think all of you have seen pictures of the Temple Mount, haven't you? It's where the Dome of the Rock is. That's a Muslim site. When they took over East Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was under their control for the very first time in over 2,500 years, they sovereignly ruled over Jerusalem. Again, absolutely amazing. Some of the the Orthodox Jews were saying, this is great. For 2,000 years, we have not had a temple. We're going to start and we're going to rebuild our temple. But what Israel did is their government said as a peace gesture, because it's a Muslim site, because the Dome of the Rock is there, we're going to let the Muslims administrate it. So ever since their 1967, they've allowed the Muslims to administrate and, and... you know, keep that site up there as a Muslim site. The Jews don't go up there. They're not allowed to go up there and pray. Matter of fact, uh, when we take tours of Israel, when we go up there, we can't show our Bibles. We can't have a Bible study up there. It's completely forbidden. All we can do is go up and look and then get off of there. That Temple Mount area, that is the, the epicenter. That is the focal point, the most controversial, you know, piece of land on the face of the earth. You're hearing a lot about the uh, talks of uh, Israel and the Palestinians having peace talks. Um, They're going to come together. They're going to talk. But when it gets down to the issue of Jerusalem, that's where you're going to see that there's going to probably be an impasse because the Palestinians are saying Jerusalem belongs to us and that's our capital. And, of course, Israel is saying that that's our eternal capital. We're going to see what the Bible says here, okay, in a couple of weeks, what God has to say, that he says, it's my city, and I've chosen that city, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But there is going to be a third temple that's going to be built that Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that's mentioned about in Revelation chapter 11 as well. It's called the Tribulation Temple. And the Tribulation Temple that will be built... I think it's actually being built right now. Because when you go to Israel, you can go to a place that's called the Temple Institute. And they'll take you in there and they'll show you where they've made a lot of the furnishings already. That they got the priestly robes ready to go. They got everything ready for the sacrifices. They're even training young men that are ready to do the sacrifices. So they can actually start the sacrifices without a building. And that's amazing when they are telling us that because I think, well, that makes sense because the sacrifices were done where? In the outer court where the altar was. So here, as Daniel chapter 9 says, that there's going to be one that will come on the scene. He's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week, that is for seven years. It seemingly indicates to us that that covenant is going to help the Jews be able to rebuild what is called the tribulation temple. We know that halfway in the tribulation period that the Antichrist will go into the rebuilt temple. He will set up an image of himself. He will claim himself as God. So that's a third temple that's spoken of in the scriptures. That temple will be destroyed when Jesus Christ comes back and he establishes his kingdom. But then there's a fourth temple that's spoken of in the scriptures. That's the millennium temple that you read about in the book of Ezekiel. 
So what we're going to be studying here is uh, the first temple, Solomon's temple, which is a magnificent temple that is standing from about 970 B.C. to 586 B.C. during that time that we'll see that all the kings of Judah before the uh, Babylonian captivity takes place um, is ruling there from Jerusalem, okay? There is actually, I want to mention to you, a fifth temple. And that's you guys. As Peter would say that we're living stones being fitted together into a holy habitation. And one of the things that the author of Hebrews really wanted to get across to his readers is that you Hebrew believers that are really struggling, that are thinking about going back to putting yourself back under the law and under the sacrifices, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is superior, isn't he? That he is the one that has provided forgiveness of sin by his sacrifice. There's complete forgiveness once and for all. That the sacrifices of the bulls and the rams and the goats that you guys did for 1,500 years, it's not enough for complete forgiveness of sin. It only co-far. It made atonement. It covered sin until the Lamb of God came and died for your sins once and for all. But the writer says something in chapter 3 that there's a temple being made by the hands of God. And he wanted the, the believers there that were coming out of Judaism to understand that there's even a greater you know, temple that's being built than this magnificent temple that you're looking at, Herod's temple, that would soon be destroyed after the book of Hebrews was written. And that is a living temple for the last 2,000 years that you're a part of. So as we go through this chapter here, as we begin to look at it, I want to encourage you and me how it is that we get to be a part of building this temple that God is doing today, a living temple, and some principles here to help us uh, to be reminded of how it is that we can be a part of something so magnificent and what God is doing in the creation and in the continuing of putting a living temple together. Let's begin to look at Second Chronicles chapter 2. Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. So here is Solomon. He's determined to build a temple. We saw that a charge was given to him by his father David that you're going to build the temple, Solomon. And when it says that he was determined to build a temple, it means he was committed to do it. He was committed to do it. Also, he would build a, a palace for himself. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 7. But here is Solomon. He's young, and uh, he has just asked for wisdom in chapter 1 as he was worshiping there at Gibeah at the tabernacle. And now he's determined to build the temple, which he's going to begin to do. But you and I, as we are belonging to this temple that God is building, what my hope and prayer for us is that we would be committed, that we would be determined to do what God has called us to do. He has something for you to do. That may be you continue to raise your children in the ways of the Lord. It may be that you're ministering in some capacity, whether you're ministering as a mom or dad, a husband, a wife, to your family, whether you're ministering to a group of people, ministering here at Calvary Chapel. But however God has gifted you and where he has called you and the doors that he's opened up to you, my prayer is that you would be committed. My prayer is that I would continue to just be committed, determined that, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to just continue to be where you want me to be and do what you want me to do. 
Lord, help me in that. And that's what Solomon is showing us. He is determined, this is a priority in my life that I am going to build the temple. I've been charged by my father David to build this temple, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to see it through. And you and I have been charged. We have been uh, given, commissioned to serve the Lord by the greater than David, that is the son of David, Jesus Christ. He has something for you to do. He desires to use you in a powerful way, whatever that might mean for you. So here is Solomon. He he is determined to build the temple. We continue in verse 2. Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry stones in the mountains, and 3,600 to oversee them. Uh, So Solomon raises up this great workforce, and uh, he's able to do that for two reasons. One is that there is peace in the land right now. David has defeated his enemies all around him, so there's no war. Uh, the men are free to be able to join in into this work, and what Solomon is doing is the kingdom right now, as you know, is experiencing its greatest blessing, its greatest prosperity. But second of all, we know that when David, as we read in First Chronicles, you recall that he went to war uh, against those nations that uh, were to the east and some of the Syrian kingdoms and the Ammonites and others. And they would come and they would surrender to David. And they said, we will become your servants. So we're going to see at the end of the chapter that there are those of the other nations that are helping in this workforce. And it's a massive project. I mean, there are those that are working in the quarries. There are those that are on the Temple Mount putting the stones together. We're going to see that there's going to be many of them uh, that are going to be involved in bringing logs down from uh, Lebanon. So here are 70,000 to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains. I mean, that's a lot of people. And then uh, 3,600 to oversee them. We read in verse 3, Then Solomon sent to Hiram king of Tyre, saying, Now you remember, as we've talked in our previous study, that David, not all the nations were his enemy. Uh, David was wise in making these alliance to those who, you know, would come to David and make peace with David. And one of those kings was Hiram, the king of Tyre, that is the king up north in what we call Lebanon. And he would send these cedar logs, these um, cypress, you know, logs, to David so he could build his palace. So he had a good relationship with David. And we know that um, those up there in Tyre and Sidon and up in Lebanon, that they were skilled carpenters and mason workers and they're going to help in building of the temple to help David in building his palace so Solomon is writing a letter to Hiram the king of Tyre and he says as you have dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in so deal with me behold I am building a temple for the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread for the burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbath and on the new moons and on the set feast of the Lord our God this is an ordinance forever to Israel and the temple which I build will be great for God is greater than all gods but who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? And therefore send me at once a man skillful to work in gold and silver and bronze and iron and purple and crimson and blue, who has skill to engrave with the skillful men who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, who David my father provided. So we read here that um, here is this letter Solomon. He writes to, to Hiram. 
and he has uh, maintained this good relationship with Hiram, the king of Tyre. You know how my father, you helped him build his palace. We know that in this account here, in 1 Kings chapter 5, it's interesting that Solomon, that he says, that you know how my father David couldn't build a house for the Lord. In other words, Hiram, you know that my father David wanted to build a house for the Lord, to honor the Lord, to bring glory to the Lord, a magnificent temple. But he told you that he was not to do that. And I believe that David was one that witnessed to Hiram. You see, he was a witness to whoever would listen to him, to that king. And it's interesting, there's indication here that Harm knew the Lord because as we're going to see, he's going to respond. He's going to say that the Lord loves his people and he's the creator. And blessed be, um, you know, the Lord, your God. And so he certainly honors the Lord. He certainly recognizes him. So he very well could have been a believer. So I believe that David was a witness to him and shared his heart with him, had a great relationship. You know how my father David couldn't build a house and and you dealt with David. And so I'm going to build a temple. It's going to be a, a magnificent temple dedicated to him. And the reason that it's going to be a magnificent temple is to bring glory and honor to God that the other nations might know that the God of Israel is the true and the living God. That was the heart, that was the desire of David and of Solomon. Our heart is to bring glory to you, and it is a magnificent temple. We're going to see that there's all kinds of gold that's going to be on the floors of the temple and overlay the temple. And um, it is going to be a magnificent structure that is being built here. But Solomon did it not so he can, you know, make a memorial or bring glory to his name. He desired to bring glory to the Lord. So the second thing that's very important with you and I as we are part of this living temple that is being built, that we are bringing glory and honor to the Lord. You see, Herod the Great, when he modified the second temple, he was wanting to build it as a memorial to him. So it became Zerubbabel's, it was known as Zerubbabel's temple. It was then called Herod's temple. He, he was a great builder, and he built these monuments to himself. Here in this temple, the first temple, Solomon and David wanted to honor the Lord. It's a magnificent building because we have a magnificent God. And as I've explained to you before, the other nations, especially when you get into Greek culture and stuff later on, that they thought, you know, greater the temple, greater the God. And that's why you see the Greeks that are in Jerusalem in the Gospels in in John's account, that the Greeks wished to see Jesus. They're there at the feast because they wanted to come and see the magnificent temple and learn about the magnificent temple. Hey, you must have a great God because you got a great temple there. And remember, Jesus was really upset and he overturned the money changers' tables and he drove out those who were selling animals because they were ripping the people off. And he says, that you've made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. And he is making reference to the book of Isaiah, where the Lord says that my father's house is a house of prayer to all the nations. You see, it was to be a witness of the glory and the honor, how magnificent God is. And that was what he wanted to do. You and I, as we serve the Lord, as we are part of this this house of God, what my prayer and hope is is that everything that we do is to bring glory and honor to the Lord. 
I don't want to elevate, you know, a name. I don't want me to be elevated. I don't want Calvary Chapel to be elevated. But we want to bring um, that glory and honor to God. We want to exalt the name of the Lord. We want to point people to Jesus, don't we? So that's the second thing that we see here as we go through this temple or through this chapter as Solomon is getting ready to build the temple. We need skilled workers, and, and uh, so can you send to me uh, those uh, who can help? Verse 7, as we read. But I want to back up in verse 6. Solomon was one that recognized that even though we're going to build a temple, he realized the heavens cannot contain God. A lot of us have been out camping, haven't we? Isn't it? Every year, it's, you know, I go out camping and you look up at the stars and you can see the Milky Way galaxies. Or if you get out kind of the outskirts of Greeley, you can see it, especially as you go up north. It's just magnificent to look at it on a summer night and, and see the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, I remember when I was a kid that the, the visible universe that they said was about 4 billion light years across. Now they say it's 12. It keeps growing. It's grown that much, you know, in the few years that I've grown up. But they don't know how big it is. They just got telescopes that can see out there further. We don't know how big it is, but the Bible says that he holds it all in the palm of his hand. And I don't know about you, but every time I look at it, I think, wow, how amazing that, you know what, the creator of the universe, and of course David, he was amazed too because he was out there in the wilderness, wasn't he? And he says that the heavens declare your glory, Lord. And then he would go on to write and he would say that what is man that you're mindful of him? And that absolutely amazes me. I look at the, the stars and I think how awesome you are. and You're the creator. You spoke and they came into existence. And what is interesting is we have the creation account there in the book of Genesis. There's not a whole lot of detail given to us in how he created the, the stars. Matter of fact, it's a short sentence. Then God created the stars and that's it. And then the rest of the Bible gets into how God loves you and me and how he desires to have fellowship with you and me how we're the crowning jewel of his creation. What is man that you're mindful of him? David was at awe, and I'm at awe with it as well, that you loved us so much that you sent your son because we were without hope. We were lost in a hopeless state, dead spiritually. But God sent his son to this world and died on a cross that we might have forgiveness of sin come into right relationship with the Father, have the hope of heaven, and we have a living hope now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? The creator of the universe. Sometimes I think, Lord, why didn't you just destroy this world and start all over again? But he didn't. He sent his son for you and for me because of his love for us. So we're building this temple. We recognize that, you know, God can't, um, you know, it can't contain our God. He's the creator and we know that he is, again, verse 7, asking for help and, and send these workers to join with those workers my father David has provided. In verse 8, send me cedar and cypress and uh, all gum logs from Lebanon, for I know that your servants have skill to cut timber in Lebanon. And indeed, may my servants 
will be with your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance for the temple which I'm about to build shall be great and wonderful. And indeed, I will give you, your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. And so in this, what we see here um, is, um, you know, send me the workers and I'm going to pay you. And verse 11, Hiram king of Tyre answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves you, loves his people, has made you king over them. Listen, if there's one thing, if there's only one thing that you get out of tonight, it's this. The Lord loves his people. His love is unfailing. His love is unconditional, it's immeasurable, it's indescribable. His love will not fail for you. The Lord loves his people. And harm, he understood that. And I pray that we would understand that as well. He has made you king over them. And harm also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth. So he recognizes that he's the creator of the universe. And he has given King David a wise son endowed with prudence and understanding who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal house for himself. And now I have sent a skillful man endowed with understanding Haram, or it might be translated harm in your um, Bible as well. He's a master craftsman. In verse 14, a son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. So uh, his mother is from the tribe of Dan, Jewish, and his father, a man from Tyre, he's Gentile, skilled to work in gold and silver and bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and blue and fine linen and crimson, and to make any engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given to him with your skillful man and with the skillful man of my Lord David, your father. Verse 15, Now therefore the wheat, the barley, the oil, the wine which my Lord has spoken of, let him send to his servants. And we will cut wood from Lebanon as much as you need. We will bring it to you in rafts by sea to Joppa, and you will carry it up to Jerusalem. And then Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David his father had numbered them. And they were found to be 153,600. And he made 70,000 of them bearers of burdens, 80,000 stone cutters in the mountains, 3,600 overseers to make the people work. So here is this agreement as Hiram is going to send this master craftsman there to help in the, uh, the artistic details of the temple and also of the furnishings as well. We're going to read about that and cover it quickly uh, next time that we get together. But they would also cut cedar logs and they would float them down the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, that seaport city, and then they would carry them up to Jerusalem. So here are all these workers, you know, that are there as we see here um, that um, there are 70,000 of them uh, bearers of burdens that are taking the stones down, 80,000 stone cutters. We know from First Kings chapter 6 that they did all the chiseling and the cutting of the stones in the quarry so that there wasn't the sound of a hammer down there at the Temple Mount and all the stones fit perfectly. And so here are tens of thousands of people and 30,000 we know will be involved in bringing these logs down. So this is a, a huge, huge project that has taken place. But again, we see some principles. Not only is there to be determination. Secondly, not only is there to be exaltation given to God, but thirdly, as we minister together in building this temple, there should be excitement. I see there's excitement here. 
there's excitement with Solomon. There's excitement with, with Hiram. They're saying, blessed be the Lord God. He is the creator of the universe. But this is going to be a magnificent temple. It's going to bring glory to the Lord. I'm going to send my workers, and, and they're going to work with you. And, and there's excitement that is going on. And I hope that you and I would realize that it's exciting to live for the Lord and to serve the Lord. And I pray that we would never have the attitude of, oh, this is just a heavy burden and this is a drudgery and kind of this sour and dour kind of mindset and attitude. Yes, I know that living for the Lord and serving the Lord, that there can be some tough seasons, just as we saw that Paul has gone through in the book of Acts. But there's excitement, isn't there? I know it's a difficult day in which we are living in because we're seeing moral and spiritual decline in our society and in our nation today. But know this as well. It's an exciting time for you and I to be a light. That there are people all around us that need to hear about Jesus Christ. And you know what? I believe that Christians today are being equipped more than ever before. That, that we can be equipped to go out and minister to others and answer questions, that, to continue in Bible study. You and I have so many opportunities to continue to grow in the Lord in, in devotions and being able to, to hear Bible study, to come here and continue in Bible study, to be equipped to be used of the Lord, and we should be excited to be light to others and a witness to others and in serving the Lord. That's one of the things that my prayer is, Lord, I don't want to ever lose that, that excitement to, to, to serve the Lord and that excitement every single day that I have opportunity to be used of you. Never to see it as a drudgery or this is, you know, a burden or, oh, I got to go in and I got to serve today. God forbid that any of us would come to that point. And what can happen is that very easily we become complacent. We just kind of start going through the motions. We're no longer excited about things. This morning I got word from um, that an old pastor friend of mine, and I looked up to him. He um, went home to be with the Lord. And he was one of those guys that really was a great influence and an example to me in my early days of ministry. And his family was very much of a blessing. And John Michaels, who cow- pastored Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas for years, we were praying for him. And he went home to be with the Lord. And, and um, just one man that really showed me that he was excited. He never lost that excitement for serving the Lord and that commitment too. He had a, 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 such a dynamic, wonderful church in, in Vegas. And I remember going out there and seeing the church and, and just listening to him. And Vegas is not an easy place to minister. There's been a lot of people that have gone there to try to minister, and they ended up quitting because it was too difficult. But John was committed to teaching the Word of God and just loving the people and hearing some of the testimonies of the people that, that came out of that you know, whole scene of Vegas and, and um, gambling and drugs and all of this. Guys, remember this, that behind the lights and the glitter and all this, there is death and depression and suicide and all of this. It is not a good scene. And John was one that he ministered to people and he cared about people. And he was one that was an example to me of, of not a pastor that just sat in his office. But he was one that got out there with the people. 
And he was one that always wanted to continue in, in ministry to the Lord. And he would actually had a very dynamic um, ministry that, that reached out to the world, to the Philistines in South America. And he was committed to that. But I'm going to miss him dearly because I loved his excitement for the Lord and serving the Lord. And he was a great example to me. So it brings sadness to me that, that he's gone and we're going to miss him and a lot of the guys, those of us who are a little bit older, but also we rejoice that he's with Jesus. So he had that excitement, and I pray that we never lose that excitement. It's very easy to, to get complacent. Don't get complacent. It is not a good place to be. Or we see it as a drudgery, but we would always see it as a privilege and an honor and exciting to be able to be used of the Lord in the building of the temple. But also what I see here as well, for you who are jotting down notes, I see there's respect that is here. They had mutual respect for each other. You know, in the church, we can nitpick each other. You know, just kind of, I don't know. It, it can be something that we do in society. We like to, you know, um, you know just kind of get into a mode where we like to put people down, find their faults, all this other stuff. And I'm not saying that you don't bring correction and love to somebody. But I think as a society that really we've lost respecting people. And sometimes I hear people say our young people don't respect our older people. That may be true, but I also see that sometimes the older people don't respect the younger people. They're always critical and, and cynical of other people. And it ought not to be that way with us. That we respect one another. That we don't always want just things our way, you know, and come with our agendas. And it's got to be my way. We're to be servants of the Lord. And that's what I see the other principle here. Not only was there determination and the desire to bring glory and honor to God, not only was there excitement, not only is there mutual respect, but I see fifthly here, I see that there's servants' hearts that are being displayed here. Here's Solomon saying, you know what, can you provide workers? Yes, I want to provide workers. And they were serving for one purpose, and that was to build this temple. To build this temple, we need to have servants' hearts. And again, we don't want to lose that. Where we begin to have our agendas, and it's got to be my way, and, you know, this is what I want. Put that all aside, and you be a servant. And I'll tell you one way that you can tell if you have a servant's heart. How are you going to react when you're treated like a servant? Are you going to be one that you have a servant's heart that, Lord, there's one purpose here to bring glory to you, to edify others, to love others, and that is we're going to build this temple. There's a world out there. People are dying and living in darkness and don't know the truth. To have a servant's heart where we're here to serve one another, serve others, and serve a dying world that is out there. So having that servant's heart that I see here as well. And that is important principles as we desire to minister to others. So here was Solomon preparing to build the temple in chapter 3. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. So here's Solomon. He's going to build the temple at the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite. And you recall that it was David, when the plague was going through Jerusalem, 
that he went to Ornan, bought the threshing floor, sacrificed there, got accepted to sacrifice, and so David knew that's where the temple was going to be. It's on Mount Moriah. So Mount Moriah, as you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look to the west, you see Mount Moriah today, and it rises. It's really a hill that goes from south to north, and they have cut into the mountain to build you know, the temple, the first temple and the second temple, and the temple mount is there. You've got to remember that Jerusalem's been destroyed and rebuilt several times. But it's interesting, as you look at it, you can see the flow of the bedrock going from south to north on Mount Moriah. They built the temple. That's where Solomon's temple was. That is where the second temple was. That is where the third temple is going to be, the tribulation temple. But it's on that place where they did the sacrifices and bulls and goats. It is the same place that a thousand years before they built this temple, that God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice for me. So Abraham took his son Isaac, and Isaac with the wood of the sacrifice on his back, and had a knife Abraham had in the fire in the other hand, and he walked up the hill called Mount Moriah. And as they walked up that hill, it was... Abraham's son, Isaac, that said, you know, Dad, you got the fire, you got the knife, I got the wood of the sacrifice, where's the sacrifice? God will provide himself a sacrifice. They get to the top of the hill, and Abraham builds an altar. He lays his son Isaac down. His son laid down freely and willingly. And as he was getting ready to plunge the knife into his son Isaac, the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham and said, Abraham, stop, don't do this. Now I know that you love God. And Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. You see, it was the same place that they were doing the sacrifices here, but here's the interesting thing. It was built on Mount Moriah, where Abraham took his son, was on top of Mount Moriah, because I say that, because that's where Solomon's quarries was, where they were making the stones. And as you go to the top of Mount Moriah today, you see that there's a south-facing kind of um, edge of where the mines were on the side of the cliff there. And you see that there's an impression there of a skull that is there even today. The place where Jesus was sacrificed for you and for me. It was 2,000 years ago that they called that place Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was an awful place that smelled of death and people stayed away from it. It was 4,000 years ago that that's the place where I believe that Abraham took his son Isaac up to the top of that hill because that's the place where the Lord will provide. And there it is where Abraham received the promise that Abraham, that the seed is going to come and be a blessing to all the nations. It was the place where Jesus, with the wood of the sacrifice, would walk through the narrow streets of Jerusalem to Calvary and die for you and for me. So he's building a living temple today because Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. He loves his people. He proved his love. He cried out from the cross, It is finished. And what my prayer is, is that if there's anyone here that if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the Lord has provided. 
Jesus came and died for you on Calvary's cross because all of us have sinned. And that separated us from God. We've fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ died on the cross because God loves his people. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it was Jesus that cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've made provision for forgiveness of sin. I've done the work, and now we come in faith. So if there's anybody here by chance, if you're here in the sanctuary or out in a coffee shop and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, we're celebrating J.D.'s birthday, but there's an even more important birthday that any of us can have that, that marks our birthday when we came into this world. That is a spiritual birthday. We're truly that we come into the kingdom of God because we put our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done, knowing that God has provided. And if that means anything to anyone today, we want to give you opportunity to surrender your heart to him. As Father, we come. As we finish up here tonight, and Lord, we thank you for the study. We thank you for your love for us. And what my prayer is, is that, again, if there's anyone here that's never surrendered their hearts to you, that they would know that you are our salvation. There's none other. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. I believe, Lord, that you can come for us at any time. We don't know the day or the hour, but we're to be watching. And you come when we're least expected. But today is the day of salvation, and what the scripture says, and as you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't merit your way to heaven. It's a free gift salvation as you come in faith. The Bible says to repent, turn direction, and surrender your life to Jesus. He has provided forgiveness. He validated what he did on Calvary's cross as he was put into a grave. And he rose again. He's alive. And perhaps he's knocking on the door of your heart. Will you let him in? You pray right where you're sitting. Jesus, I come to you tonight. And I confess that I am a sinner in need of the Savior. That's you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. And be my personal Lord and Savior. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. And I believe that you're alive, that you... You're knocking on the door of my heart right now and I let you in. I surrender my life to you. I turn to you. My life is not my own. Help me to live for you all the days of my life. And if anybody prayed that prayer, a couple things. I want you to come up after service and I want you to tell me the decision that you made. And then second of all, know that you are now part of this living temple that's being built.